This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our November edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader challenges facing our society. Bryce, how are you today? I'm good, Justin. How are you doing? I am doing well. And we're recording this on election day, so we thought it appropriate to discuss what could be described as a crisis in the political labor market. Fewer people seem interested in running for office, and those who are elected have less experience in government. Why is this happening, and what are the consequences? So first off, Bryce, um, is this a problem? Is there a problem in the political labor supply? People are not satisfied with the system, right? So if you look at Americans' trust in democracy or how many say that democracy is going well, it's plummeted over the past 40 years. Um, you see the word dismal in prominent yes, places you on know, the Pew Research website. Trust in Congress has always been relatively low, but it's way lower than even it used to be. There was always this, you know, everyone else sucks, but mine's good sure. issue, right? Whereas, you know, people rated their own representatives as being good and mm-hmm. everybody else's was bad. Right. But even our satisfaction with our own representatives has fallen uh, over time relative to what it was 20, 30 years ago. You know, while people still obviously keep electing, reelecting incumbents at a high rate, you know, so they're not completely dissatisfied with sure. them. But the satisfaction, the incumbent advantage has fallen. Uh, more newcomers are entering. But certainly people are appear dissatisfied with the system and the people participating in it. Yeah. And so we think about this, like there's supply side, there's demand side. Let's start on the supply side. I think that's where we're going to focus most of our attention today. So you said people are less satisfied with not only Congress in general, but their elected official. And that level of satisfaction and trust is now close to the 50% mark. Yeah, so Gallup has asked this for a long time. Uh, You know, you go back 20, 30 years, it was typically in the 60s, maybe even the 70s, depending on the year. And it would fluctuate. There would be periods of upheaval where people were dissatisfied with things and you would see some wave election, whatever it is. But now it's basically never above 50% or much above 50%. When we ask the bigger question about who's entering politics and, you know, Pew did a survey just, you know, asking about what people thought of representative people who are in elected office. Yeah. And it's, it's appalling. I think it's like 17% of Americans think that people who run for office are doing it for quote, the right reasons like public service. Right. Versus you know, making a lot of money, making or money or being famous or, sure. you know, whatever it is. We are not looking at people running and saying, Oh, I think you're doing this for the right reasons, whether or not they are or not. And I think, Probably most of them are, in fact, running for reasonably good reasons, but um, not all of them are. Sure. Right. And we have plenty of examples of people who you look at uh, that appear on television uh, or in some other form of media that you consume, and you're like, that person's an idiot. How did they get elected? Somebody's loud on Twitter or constructs their campaign or their their time in office as a mechanism for getting on Fox News or MSNBC or or getting attention rather than governing. I mean, that seems to describe a class of folks that we have, um, particularly in the House of Representatives right now. 
How much of a problem is that versus just candidate supply and quality in general? Okay, so this is where it gets hard, right? Because yeah. we get back into like, what does it mean for, you know, to what's candidate quality, right? What is and, that? Yeah. And, and the literature on this, like, generally looks at kind of two areas. Mm-hmm. So one is just representation, right? So are, is the candidate representative of its the people it's trying to represent. And that's measured in terms of viewpoints or? Well, it could be that. It could be, you know, things that we observe. So that's one way, probably the less ideal way to be fair. People have done a lot of different ways, right? So some of it looks at people who've actually been successful and says, well, did they pass bills? Did they, you know, get elected to higher office? You know, sure. Were they say, effective in were office? Were they effective in office? And we can measure efficacy in different ways. Right. And, you know, so you can try and measure that directly. And then yep. there's also attempts to like, yeah, well, we gave personality tests or surveys to people who got elected and we tried mm-hmm. to see how they were different than the general population. Okay, so those are kind of different ways. The problem is we just don't have a good longitudinal time series kind of thing where we can say, these are who we were electing in the 50s and this is who we're electing now, right? So we can't, we don't have like pre the United States, an objective measure of quality or performance that we can use to look at the people who are actually serving, which is another big issue when we're talking about politician labor supply, which is not very many people become politicians. Right, small sample. It's a rare event, right? Yeah. And so what the literature a lot of times tries to do is they try and actually, well, then they try and put people on a spectrum of interest in running. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we're saying, oh, well, politician labor supply is shrinking, what we would want to be measuring is fewer people are even interested. Right. And I think that's where if we had a really good measure of this over time, we would probably see real declines in the interest of people in running. For, we're still filling all the offices. Yeah. People are running. Right. Right. But if you're saying, well, who are all the people that are just not entering the ring, but are on the cusp of and could be pulled in? My guess is that that pool has really thinned out. And that then the average quality of the pool of people who are at least somewhere within the sphere of considering running, my guess is that the average quality, if we could measure what we might, you know, if we were to get together in a room with a random selection of Americans and say, well, who do we want, right? right? Oh, I want people who are thoughtful and people who uh, will listen and people who will, you know, act in the best interest of the people they represent and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. We've so we haven't, we aren't selecting for the things that we, we would say we want and who we're actually getting into the pool. Yeah. I mean, you could certainly make that anecdotal argument with the upcoming presidential, what it looks like as a, as a Trump Biden race. We're like, Nobody wants them to run. Nobody wants them to run. The best we can do is two 80 year olds, essentially, why isn't anybody else raising their hand? There's a lot of reasons for that. A bunch of people did raise their hands, but they didn't really get any traction. But uh... And so th- there's this other piece too. It feels like in some ways, and this goes to the demand side, we're in a little bit of a circular firing squad, right? Like you, as you said, the offices are getting filled. People are running and we're electing them. And so winning an election is some measure of quality as a candidate. It might not be that accurate a measure, But it is some measure of our preferences as voters. And we are electing, you know, if 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 as an electorate we put forth two 80-year-olds as our choices, does that more of an indictment of us as voters or an indictment of the system or an indictment of who chose to run or not run? 
at the end, if you're saying, well, where does the problem lie? The problem is with us. Right. Any kind of democratic system, the demand side is ultimately the side that is responsible, mm-hmm. right? Now, we have all of the, the authority that we need yeah. to say, I want to vote for better candidates and I will only vote for better candidates. Absolutely. Uh, a huge part of the problem is on us, right? And, you know, and there's a bunch of ways that we see that, right? So it used to be that, you know, candidate quality mattered more than it does now, right? Far more people today are just, I'm just going to vote for a party. Sure. It does not matter who the person is, yep. what they stand for, what they've done, anything about them. Just, I, you know, they could be enormously flawed and I will still vote for them because they, quote, are in the right group, right? So, you know, to the extent that that's the real problem, that's probably the biggest part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But it's endogenous, right? You know, so there's a paper from like 20 years ago called Bad Politicians, you know, which argues that you can just end up in a bad equilibrium, right? So why do voters support bad politicians? Because they only see bad politicians. They sure. Everybody is bad, right? Yep. And so when that you get on this this equilibrium, you go down a path where you don't pull enough good people in. You end up in the bad equilibrium, and then it's hard to get out of the bad equilibrium. Well, how do I get out of the bad equilibrium? I get good people in, right? You know, I attract good people in the system, and they are successful. They start turning the ship, and we hopefully get over to the good equilibrium. It's a true chicken and egg issue. Yes, the lion's share of the blame is technically on us, but we have to live with the humans that we have. So let's go back to your sort of operating theory of... As a country, so in aggregate, we're not getting the folks we want running for Congress. We're not getting- at the right percentages or at the levels that we want, right? Again, you know, I don't want to say that nobody is good in Congress or nobody is good on your school board or city council. Exactly. That's not what we're saying. uh, You know, it's, it's that where is the margin, right? Then the margin has shifted in ways which are- I think less in line with the ideal that I think that, again, if I put a hypothetical random sample of Americans in a room and said, describe to me, set aside any kind of policy position, describe the characteristics of the people that you want. And I think we have moved from that margin. Sure. I guess another way to look at it too is that just – why are these positions less attractive to the the sort of ideal person that you describe there? So yeah, this is a classic labor supply question, right? So you know, if I'm going to decide to run, it's just like deciding any other job. Sure, right? I'm basically going to say only there's some differences here, but it's basically like, well, what are the benefits and what are the costs, mm-hmm. right? And so the expected benefits, so like I got the probability that I'm actually going to win. I'm going to multiply that times the net benefit of service, right? So then that basically includes like if I win, I get paid for the job that I do. Yep. At least in some jobs. You know, I get particularly at higher levels, like being a congressperson or a senator can be a, a, an, a, an opportunity to rise up a ladder. And when I leave, I get to be a different job, right? So, you know, there's whatever money is involved. Monetary rewards. The full monetary. Yep. And then, you know, but the main reason that, you know, people tend to end up in this are what we call non-pecuniary, right? So sure. they're not money, right? It's uh, maybe I have a strong policy position that I'm trying to 
push through. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm just ideological and I want to see my ideological side have more power in Congress. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want the power yourself. Maybe, maybe you want social status. Status. Influence. You know, I want to say that I'm in the position. Or you um, want, just want to serve too. You know, and I mean, some people, you know, that's just, I'm interested in, I really care about X, Y, and Z. And mm-hmm. this is why I want to do it. And I think too, you know, we've talked in this segment about reasoning from antagonism. I think that's a force too that motivates people to run is like, I don't like what's happening. I want to prevent that thing from happening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. I want, I, I, I just don't want those other people. Those are the benefits. And then obviously there's, there's a cost of actually doing it. Right. right? You know, in terms of whatever you could be doing in your, your job or family time or uh, leisure time, you know, like these are frequently all encompassing jobs. So there's a lot of travel, there's a lot of time, uh, you know, so there's all of the stuff that goes into that. And then I still have to subtract off the cost of running, mm-hmm. the fundraising and the interminable campaigning and the negative attacks that I have to right. endure. And, and your you family know, has to endure. And your family has to endure and all that kind of stuff, right? So we basically say, okay, well, you know, part of the reason why I think it's reasonable to assume that the pool of people and the quality of the set of people is declining is because when I look at these parameters in this thing, it's pretty easy to see a number of ways in which they have become less favorable, right? So just starting with the money, particularly at the the DC level, like being a, a congressperson used to be, at least from a financial perspective, a reasonably good job. Yeah. Right? In the 50s, 60s, you're in the top 1% of mm-hmm. earners, mm-hmm. right? You were earning two hundred fifty to $300,000 in today's terms. You probably didn't have to travel as much back to your district because it wasn't as easy. So you did it more time there. And then, you know, you would just live there. You didn't have to kind of maintain two houses and be going back and forth. Right. Maybe today you have more opportunities for post-service income. That exists and has always existed to some extent, but um, the rewards to post-service employment have accelerated, and we've talked about revolving door policy in, in government. That's not something we necessarily want. I mean, that's on the re- that's on the benefit side of the ledger, as you describe it, but that is a benefit that I don't think we- It's not necess- necessarily aligned with the voters' preferences. Exactly. Right? Like, you know, it's, it's, so the, 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 the most pernicious version of it is just straight corruption, right? I go to Congress and I use my my position to literally just benefit myself at the expense of others. Mm-hmm. The less pernicious version, but still potentially harmful from the perspective of the public is I know that I am only in this position for a certain amount of time and I'm trying to use, lever this position into my post- Sure, it's an audition. Um, you know, job income. So I'm sitting there and on certain policies or certain bills, I'm basically just trying to line up the people who are going to pay me afterwards, right? It's not directly corruption, but it's from the public's perspective, it's the same thing, right? I'm basically manipulating my position on certain issues in exchange for, you know, positioning myself in, you know, the after period. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, it's fine because, you know, they just, they're ideologues to begin with and they just end up moving into the think tank that's ideologically aligned with them. But there's still incentives in terms of, oh, I can't budge on these issues because that's the think tank I'm trying to end up or the lobby shop I'm trying to end up afterwards. And maybe somebody could have persuaded me, but I can't. I gotta, I'm not even going to listen because th- that's my path, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, I, you know, to the extent that there is a large 
financial incentive that can help offset some of the the costs. But you know, if that's the benefit that's getting people in, that's not again, that's not selecting based on the things that I think that again in this idealized version we want to select on. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is Ryan Tutel of ESPN Radio in Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Bryce Ward about the dismal state of our political labor markets. And so, you know, the direct compensation is definitely eroding. Mm-hmm. The prestige of the job has eroded. Or, or on the non-pecuniary benefit side, again, there are benefits there. But the benefit, you know, to the extent that you're like, I'm going to go to Congress and I'm going to get a bill passed, right? Or I'm going to be, be on the school board and I'm going to affect this policy or whatever it is. Your opportunity to do that is actually pretty limited in a polarized, party-driven environment. And so it becomes harder and harder to get reap the, you know, I'm here because I am interested in, I'll just use the school board again. I just care about education. And I care that our schools are the best version of themselves that I can yeah. be, right? The simplest value that you would want in a school board member, right? Well, if your school board gets taken over by a political party, which is increasingly happening in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of people who are funded by, you know, school board elections now cost money. They did not used to cost money. Now there are campaign signs and there's money. Uh, and, you know, the return I'm getting from being on the school board is, oh, I'm a party soldier and I get kudos from my party friends uh, when I do the things that they want. Well, now the other people who are on the school board who were there because they were like, hey, we're going to have a fruitful discussion. Well, they may not have the power to do anything. Or that the power they do have to do things gets diminished. And so now it's like, well, do I want to keep doing this? So what you're describing is, is just a less attractive job. The composition of activities and things you can get done uh, based on those activities is less attractive. Yeah. So the, the jargon in, in labor economics is a compensating wage differential, right? Compensating so, wage differential. Right. I love it. So the, the idea is, is that there were things about the job that even you know, holding the money constant, these non-pecuniary parts of the job, the benefits have shrunk because if I just am going to be, you know, again, think of a backbench house member. Yeah. Like, I have no authority. I can't get a bill passed. I'm just here to, I'm here to vote for the speaker. Mm-hmm. Right? And in every rules election that the speaker needs to maintain their power, that's, I, I go to some committee meetings and I get to do some stuff, but the... Uh, the the odds of me really having any effect on anything are pretty limited. Although there are other pathways to influence, right? I mean, we can take AOC and Matt Gates. Like those are examples of people playing a different game, right? They've distinguished themselves not based on legislative achievements, but on other forms of notoriety and influence. Hey, and that's the question: Is that what we want? Right, right. Is, is that, that an outcome we want? Is that something I want to select for? I mean, is this in some ways like that effect? Is it is it sort of similar to what's happened with social media in the sense that these algorithms have figured out that how to keep us engaged on the platform is to enrage us, right? 
I think if you were to ask any individual, they would say, no, I don't want to be enraged. I don't want to live in this state. Yet the algorithm has figured out like that's the way to keep me engaged. And so that's what I am served with, content that enrages me. Is that the way we act as voters? Exactly. Maybe? It's exactly how we act as voters, right? That, and that's why those inflammatory politicians have such power, right? You know, and what's even sicker about the whole thing, and again, this is why the problem is us as humans, right? right is that apparently you can drive sufficient power just by being the person who makes the other side the most upset. Okay, so these are not new psychological phenomena, right? So why uh, why is it worse now than it's been? I mean, there are systems in our constitution that are purportedly designed to protect from some of these, you know, deficiencies we have uh, as human beings. Why is the system sort of functioning less well now than before? The one word answer is is media. Yep. Uh, and the more complicated answer is that we have a whole bunch of different types of media. You go from a world 50 years ago where you read a newspaper, you know, but you weren't constantly engaged or enraged by what was happening uh, at all levels of government. Mm-hmm. You know, you got these little doses and you would learn and you would kind of update your perception of things and then vote accordingly. Yeah, although I would lean into that a little bit and say that. Over those 50 years, the local media has declined immensely. So, yeah, you might not be on the pulse of the national dialogue as as um, tightly as you once as you are now, but you probably were more informed about what's happening on that school board, what's happening in city council, and less tied to the national dialogue. That's right. So we have media that is more present in our lives. Mm-hmm. The the media that is more present in our lives shifts our focus and the resources that come with our eyeballs and attention to the national story as opposed to the local story. Right. And resources flow in that right. direction. Resources flow in that direction. You know, I read a paper recently on, you know, that used some measure of local media and responsiveness. And it showed that, you know, places with stronger local media have more representative representatives, you know. And so, you know, the dearth of local media and the attention to local media, it's a problem. Again, this is us screwing ourselves over. But, you know, so you have all of the media attention that draws it that way. But then you also, at the same time, you layer on top of this, you know, this wave of money that is now required to compete in elections. Who controls that money, mm-hmm. right? In particular, the party control of the money uh, and how much you have to then, you know. And again, this also goes feeds into the cycle of why does it, why would I not want to run for Congress? Because if I get a job in Congress, I now become, my job is to be a fundraiser. Yeah. Right? That's my job. Yeah, something like. 40% of yeah. the labor hours of a Congress, a person in Congress go to fundraising. That's right. You know, that doesn't sound very appealing. No. no. Uh, you know, that's not what I want to, you know, that's not, again, and so we're selecting on these skills and right. So, well, how do I get, what makes it easy for me to be a fundraiser? Become famous or infamous. You know, and, and another, you just, you know, another easy, easy to overlook issue with all of this, this larger media story is why do I need to rely on the media so much? Yeah. Well, when we started this country, you know, and for a long time, as we expanded the size of the House of Representatives, House District had like 60,000 people in it. Now they have at least a million, basically. Yeah. Right. You know, Montana, we went from the largest to now that we're one of the smallest and we're like at 550,000. Mm-hmm. 
right? But in a state that's, you know, so your congressional districts are the size of reasonably large European countries. Yeah. Um, and I've got 550, and we're like, and that's, and that's quote small. Right? Well, the only way I can communicate with 550, I can't do retail politics. I can't be in, you know, my community. And, and again, in Montana, like having lived in other places, the access to our higher level politicians is so much more enormous. Yeah. Than, Montana, we have like, we have it pretty good on that dimension. We have, because again, we have two senators for a million people. Yeah. California has two senators for 40 million, 40 million people. Yeah. Right. Well, how do you communicate with 40 million people? Well, I can only do it by television advertising, mm-hmm. right. And radio and basically a media war. Yeah. Right. So, which is now then why part of the reason why the job sucks all right, so I have to spend forty percent of my time raising money, and well, it's tough for me to do that. How do I even get access to the people with the big checkbooks? Sure, I pledge loyalty to a party apparatus or an ideological apparatus that will then funnel me the money that I need to get elected. You know, and so we basically just we've taken the individual out of the system because of the media environment, which is in in turn a byproduct of. The size, you know, again, even going locally, as the size of Missoula gets bigger, we don't add school board seats. We don't add city council seats. So, yeah. So short of trying to just increase the number of seats available, especially when there seems to be a supply side problem, too, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a workable solution. Um, however, it could create a different set of opportunities if you add seats and, and different pathways to influence. Um, one thing I want to ask you about, though, in our closing minutes here is you've talked a fair amount in this segment in different contexts about superstar effects and how they are um, sort of mediating outcomes in a lot of different markets, entertainment, um, sports, etc. How are superstar effects playing out in these markets, or do you think they are? They're playing out, right? Uh, It's just not in ways that I think go to this core of, well, who do we want? Right. Okay. The superstar effect is the media superstar effect. Okay. So it's not necessarily superstar in, in the, the LeBron James sense of the word. It's not it, superstar in that this is the greatest legislative or executive person that we could possibly find. Right. And they just accumulate all of the power and votes. And we're like, wow, look at this. We get the best person possible. Sure. It's right? more just how much, uh, how much market share of attention can you grab? It's about market share of attention. And okay. so the superstar, such as they are, are... Man, they literally make me sick. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like it's like, oh, great. You know, this because the attention and dollars flow, they amass power because they amass attention and dollars. Yep. And with attention and dollars, not only can they like get themselves elected, but they become the purse string holder for the other potential candidates. Right, right. right? So that meritocracy, you know, you climbed the ladder and now you can pull it up and selectively push it down to your friends. That's right. And basically, it's well, if you kiss my ring, then great. I got millions of dollars that I can funnel you. Yeah. Yeah. You're the kingmaker. Well, we certainly painted a, a rosy picture of the state of things um, in our political markets. Let's try next month to come up with some solutions. Um, maybe it takes us longer than a month, but we're going to try to come back to you in this segment with some ways that we think uh, we can improve outcomes in this in this system. We'll try. <laughs> That's all we can do. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, 
generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO Jeff Amet and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.